So by now, you probably have had uh, many thoughts about the retreat's end and returning to your life outside of the retreat. And um, it's just interesting. I mean, I'm guessing that in some moments there was probably some real fear and maybe other moments some excitement or sense of release, relief. But it's probably appropriate um, <clears throat> to have some concern about re-entry. And so tonight I want to talk about the joy of renunciation as a kind of overview, a way to hold and understand this path, this path of practice, this awakening path, and also as a kind of protection for ourselves as we leave the retreat and re-enter the world. And it's really, a, I think, a nice way to think about it as a, is as a change, a shift in allegiance. Part of the reason we might be a little bit excited about leaving the retreat is this promise that often arises in our minds, you know, the if only, then I'll be happy. If only I can sleep in my own bed. If only I can see my loved ones. If only I can eat the food I want to eat. Or, you know, you just have, if only I don't have to be mindful all day long. <laughs> then I'll be happy. So that's, that's our general orientation. We have a lot of confidence. I mean, we shift around a lot what the if only is. But there's generally one if only or another that the mind is toying with and really seems in that moment, for a few moments, true to us in our subjective experience that if only this talk were over or if only then that would be good, that would be good. And um, I think one of the reasons we have, can have some apprehension about leaving the relatively protected space of the retreat and the Dhamma, the, these teachings, this community, is not so much on the surface, but underneath, hopefully growing in our hearts is some concern, some sense that that promise is never kept the if only promise. And uh, we're afraid of forgetting that completely or getting swept away with only that orientation to protect us. Where we're really chasing one if only after another, trying to patch together enough interesting moments, pleasant moments to make life seem okay enough. And that the anxiety of that, the restlessness of pursuing interesting and pleasant sense experience is what we, <clears throat> sort of how we might describe an ordinary human existence. <clears throat> Some people are more privileged and fortunate in terms of their pursuit of the if only this experience, if only that experience, and other beings, human beings, 
have less privilege and less good fortune and less options at finding. And it's just interesting how convinced, how convincing it is that the world is really here. Its purpose is to sort of provide for my happiness. And the world includes our partners, our friends, our families, our possessions, our circumstances. Doesn't it seem that way that the purpose of the world, certainly we can feel that way at Spirit Rock. I mean, just the beauty of the land. It's like, oh yeah, that's why it's so nice to, it's like we have the, we tend to personalize because the thinking, the stories we tell ourselves that are repeated in our mind, one way or another, they generally star ourselves. And even when we have not such pleasant circumstances, then we still star in our own stories, but it's the story of betrayal. The world isn't living up to its responsibility to deliver happiness. You know, and we have a story about how it should be other than the way that it is. But when we just step back a little bit, you might sense what an arrogant story that is, that somehow the world, the world of experience, the world of conditions, it's really here, like the Garden of Eden, some version of that story. It was a gift from beneficent beings to sort of make me happy. I remember at a retreat that Saito Tejaniya gave at this center, Spirit Rock, maybe about four years ago. And uh, there was a group meeting with them. There were a lot of the Spirit Rock teachers in that group and other Dharma teachers. And, uh, you know, it's, it, we're attached to sort of knowing about the Dharma. And so he started out the practice group by looking at all of us and asking this question, is the Dharma optimistic or pessimistic? And then he wanted everyone to pick. <laughs> sort of looking around, I noticed I was just like crouching in the back. Because <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of us knew immediately it was a setup, but we didn't know exactly, we weren't nimble enough to sort of catch, like what answer does he want? And uh, so once he had enough people committing to optimistic or pessimistic, then, uh, you know, then the line, oh, it's neither, right? It's realistic. And this really points to that talk the Buddha gave, uh, I think maybe Joseph referenced it, uh, setting the wheel of Dhamma emotion talk in the tradition. It's considered to be the Buddha's first Dharma talk after his awakening And the first part of that first Dharma talk is about this middle way that clearly sense experience. These people he was talking to, these longtime friends, spiritual friends of his that had rejected the Buddha because they thought he had gone a little soft, no longer interested in pursuing asceticism. asceticism. And so uh, 
they already, all of them, knew that about limitations of sense experience because they were into ascetic practices. So he started that talk by saying, you know, the way that I've discovered that I realized in my practice isn't about indulging in sense pleasures. Okay. And then he said, but it is, it's also not about rejecting sense pleasures, pathologizing embodiment, like seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thoughts about our existence, about our sense experience. They're not inherently bad. And that's related to what I was talking about the other night, that sutta about chitta. It's not that we're sensitive and it's not the world we're sensitive to. It's what arises in conjunction with our sensitivity to the world. That's the problem. And having a realistic view, this middle way the Buddha points to, is really beginning to understand the joy of suffering. Because we tend to swing back and forth between thinking the world is here to deliver happiness or the world is messing with me, screwing with me, it's betraying, it's not living up, you know, and we want to blame somebody or blame the world or blame God or, or work hard to kind of find our way so that the world can deliver the happiness I think I deserve. I think related to this too is this uh, sense that we have that craving, what Joseph talked about a few nights back, craving really arises because it's the fault of the world. And to open our minds that the world is the way that it is because of craving. And that we might not actually know what this experience as a human being is with a mind free of craving. We may not know that world. The world we know is the world that is shaped and defined by a mind that craves. And yeah, sometimes our mind is really craving, really attached, and other times less attached, but rarely no attachment, right? We might have glimpses of the reality, as Ajahn Chah calls it, the reality of non-grasping. We might have glimpses of that experience, but that would be relatively rare. And it also, I think, points to this joy of renunciation, this change of allegiance from the allegiance we tend to have conditioned into us by culture, probably genetically in some ways as well, this allegiance to sensuality, to somehow believing that I can find happiness in the world of experience that the purpose of experience is to support real happiness. I mean, we definitely have pleasant experience with sense experience. I mean, that seems undeniable. But given how many times we've gratified desire, that we've had the desires, or rather the experiences that we desired, I mean, think about how many experiences gratifying experiences we've had in our lives. 
dinner, just the heat going away, it's relatively pleasant, right? But thousands and thousands and thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of distinct gratifying experiences in our lives. So anybody done desiring, craving? So the gratification happens, but how does it leave us having gratified a desire? It leaves us thinking about another desire to gratify and then another desire to gratify. So it's a restless realm, this ordinary way we are <clears throat> as a human being. So the, and restless for those who are most fortunate, right? So even the beautiful people, the intelligent people, the people with good fortune and privilege, it's a restless realm. And it just gets worse from there. Right? People who have less good fortune, less privilege, less fortunate circumstance. It can be really challenging. There's an old teaching story that I heard. It's not you know, historical or anything. Made up story about the Buddha. And it's about a farmer who um, had problems with his life, exactly as I'm talking about. You know, can't count on the weather, can't count on the kids to do the chores, can't count on the farm animals to do what they're supposed to do, reproduce or do this or do that. Can't count on anything, you know, just thinking about all his troubles, hears about the Buddha, decides to track the Buddha down, see if the Buddha can help him. So it took a while, but he really didn't like his life and all the problems he had. So he stuck with it. He eventually tracked down the Buddha and told the Buddha about all his problems, expecting a wise answer. But what the Buddha said, remember, this is just a made-up story. Everybody has 83 problems. There's nothing I can do. And even if I had some kind of clever answer for one of your problems, you'd probably just get another one. Sorry. And the farmer was upset and just storms away mumbling, you know, why does anybody, why would anybody seek you out? And just before he was out of earshot, the Buddha says to him, I can't help you with your 83 problems, but I might be able to help you with your 84th problem. And the farmer thought, is this a setup? <laughs> but anyway, he listened. And the Buddha said, so the 84th problem that I can help you with is you not liking having 83 problems. Right? The unreliable, ungovernable, changing nature of one's existence, like the weather, like children, partners, farm animals, crops, and our own mind and heart. Unreliable, uncertain, ungovernable, unsatisfactory, So the Buddha isn't about fixing the world or finding, I mean, there's, it's really provocative, some of the teachings or statements that come out of early Buddhism. Some of you know the Metta Sutta, because sometimes places like Spirit Rock, we chant the sort of translation of the Metta Sutta. In one way, some people translate that Sutta at the very end after talking about 
sending love to all beings in all ways and all conditions. It just talks about the awakening process in the last line of something, um, will not be born again into this world or to in, not born again in any other womb, right? So the fruit of practice of awakening is to not be born again into the world of sensuality, into the world of a mind imagining that sensuality, sense experience is here to make somebody happy, here to satisfy someone. So that's a way to, th- to kind of hold our path. And this might be especially useful as you re-enter the world tomorrow, like driving away, even seeing your car, those of you who drove or talking, interacting, being a social being as you might after we break silence in the morning. Re, you know, kind of re-inhabiting our social persona and just noticing the world of sense experience and noticing the inherent hunger. Like when you're talking to somebody, there's some part of the mind that wants to feed to get something from the experience, whatever it might be or driving, or whatever it might be, there's some body, some quality in the mind that expects sensuality, sense experience to deliver something. You go home, you look through the mail, you check your emails, you check in with the people you live with, check the fridge, and every time, everything we check, just start to notice the allegiance, the sort of force of habit, this allegiance that the fridge and what's in the fridge is really here to serve happiness. <laughs> Emails, you look at the news, what kind of news? Well, and remember our happiness can be a little perverse, like getting angry, the self-righteousness, you know? Like, oh yeah, that feels good. I, I recognize what that, you know, that sense of me who's outraged. And it's just this very deep pervasive habit of feeding, you know, expecting sense experience, expecting to feed on sense experience to support, to kind of provide some ground, some sense of safety. But when we're honest with ourselves, we see it doesn't really satisfy. It isn't satisfying. That's a deeper sense of what dukkha points to. It's just this simple truth. It's not actually, doesn't require kind of deep samadhi to see that sense experience isn't satisfying. All it takes is a little bit of a break in the pursuit of the next, if only, promise to be kind of noticing, okay, I just had ice cream. Now I need something salty. Now I need a cool drink. I might, I might use some more ice cream. (laughs) You know, and it's just like one thing after another. And if we just step back, we see how restless that is. How not stable that is. And the only real relief we get often is the pursuit of satisfaction 
makes us exhausted, and then we sleep. <laughs> and then we start over. <laughs> I know it sounds a little <laughs> depressing, <laughs> but it's not my fault. <laughs> and, and we have the Buddha, because he points to a different kind of happiness. It's really, I ask, uh, Andy Olensky, some of you maybe have studied with him. He, way back when, was, I think, possibly IMS's first executive director, or one of the first, if not the first. Um, and then eventually, um, with the support of Joseph and Sharon and other leaders at IMS, started the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies and was the senior scholar and director there for a long time. And uh, I remember asking him when... I was really first starting to read the suttas in the mid-90s in a, in a more sort of formal way and understanding, trying to understand uh, more directly the Buddhist teachings. And I asked him what I thought at the time was a pretty provocative question. And uh, because it seemed to me that the Dharma, because it's so easy, there's so many shadows generally in spirituality and also in Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings. And one of the shadows is this idea that the world is bad and Buddhism is about understanding that the world is bad because it's dukkha and the practice would be some kind of existential sense, okay, it's really bad, getting attached just makes it worse, so I'm going to bear, I'm gonna be in the world but I'm not gonna get attached it won't be pleasant, but there's something noble in not being attached. And that just didn't feel right to me at the time. Like somehow I had some intuition that, and uh, the Buddha says something like this, that the path is good in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. There's this taste, liberating taste, it may not be perfectly clear, it isn't perfectly clear, but there's a sense but it's not so much what's there as much as what's not there. That's why it's difficult, this change of allegiance from the gratification of sense pleasure to the happiness, the joy of renunciation. Because one is really pursuing something, getting a little hit, and then finding something else to pursue. And if we're circumstances are supportive enough, getting a little hit of pleasure and putting up with the restlessness and the uncertainty of that in the times where we feel betrayed because we can't get any sense pleasure. We got a lot of physical pain or a lot of emotional pain or we're being oppressed in some way. So there's this change of allegiance. So I asked Andy something like, uh, would it be right to think of the Buddha's path of awakening as the pursuit of an ever more refined kind of happiness. And I was so happy, I don't know exactly what he said, but basically confirmed, yeah, you could think of it that way. As long as you understand that it's, it's a shift, like it's a, a change of allegiance in what kind of happiness. And the Buddha said once um, that a wise person would wisely, happily let go of a lesser happiness in order to 
pursue a greater, more refined, a more stable happiness. But you know, we can actually have that shift of allegiance if we're sort of totally committed to the pursuit of happiness in the way that we know. Always doing what we've always done, always getting what we've always gotten, but never satisfied, but too busy, too distracted in the pursuit of the gratification that we can get in our lives, given our circumstances, to take a step back. Well, now we've been here nine days, eight days. This is our step back, just like every, hopefully, day, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever you can put in, in a quiet place. We're stepping back and we're having a more honest and a more direct moment to moment reckoning. And what do we see? Well, we see the force of habit, like right there in our meditation practice, trying to get comfortable. You know, the, we know we're not supposed to move, but we do a lot of subtle adjustments. It's a little bit of the whole allegiance to sensuality as a meaningful end, you know, pursuing sense experience. We see it just in trying to get comfortable in our set, or just even in trying to get samadhi, getting calm, can be some version of that, trying to have a good sit. Instead of noticing, trying to have a good sit is like this, right? Seeing it as a moment of wisdom. Oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. The mind is trying to have a good sit and it looks or feels like this. Because the joy, the, the actual pleasure, you could say, but joy is really more about what's not there than what's there. So that, that's why flavors of contentedness, peace, equanimity, no matter the conditions. One uh, obvious place where this gets very poignant is just in terms of our relationships to other people. A lot of you have children, old or young, that you're connected with and care about and are moved by their joys and sorrows. A lot of you have partners or dear friends. Some of you are activists or have causes that you deeply care about in the world. So we'll be in relationship and I was thinking about this today and I remembered this uh, article I read, I think it was in Shambhala Sun by Susan Piver, a Buddhist writer. And that article is titled, I Do. It's actually a question, I Do? (laughs) A Buddhist struggles with impermanence versus marriage. And she talks about being on a retreat or some kind of workshop meditation uh, program And at one of the meals, she connected with a person and they were just chatting about life and introducing themselves to each other. And this other person, older man, was talking about how he had gotten involved with a younger woman and she really wants to move in and just kind of opening up and sharing this predicament. And then sort of says to this new friend of his that they're just having dinner together, do you think it can work? And her first response, she didn't say this, her first response was like, 
how do I know? <laughs> but she heard herself saying something. It's kind of interesting sometimes when Dharma just comes out. And she had this great, I think, great response. And she said, well, of course it can work as long as you don't expect it to make you happy. And I just thought and think that's a brilliant Dharma response to that kind of question. Yeah, those of you who are parents, do you think it can work? Like, yeah, if you don't expect your children to make you happy. Those of you, you know, in intimate relationships. Intimate relationship. <laughs> Some of you into intimate relationships. <laughs> so whatever it is, or you have a cat, <laughs> or a dog, or whatever it is, it's like it's okay. <clears throat> like commit avoiding commitment is just a different kind of commitment, right? We're committed to the idea that commitments are bad, right? So that doesn't work, or. It doesn't work any better than being in a committed relationship. The problem is, this is again going back to that sutta about chitta, it's about what arises in conjunction with our sense contact, which is this delusion that sense experience is here to fulfill somebody, i.e. me, right? And then when it doesn't, first of all, it really gets in the way of a, a beautiful relationship with a sunset, a partner, a child, a cat, right? It gets in the way when you expect the cat to fulfill your emotional needs <laughs> or whatever it is. It won't work. But if we don't expect it to feed us, right, it just might work. And that's kind of an interesting thing to look at as you transition back. Like, are you expecting the car to make you happy? Or the relationship, or the food, or the being in your bed, or whatever it might be. She said a little bit more that I thought I might just read. So I reported these words and we had a moment. We were kind of embarrassed. Yes, Buddhists are supposed to know that craving creates suffering, but I guess we still secretly hoped that a relationship could make us happy. If only we could get the circumstances just right. My new pal and I talked about this and how relationships can blind us to the Dharma quicker than anything. As we said goodbye, I watched him walk away. I wanted to call out, don't be afraid to tell yourself the truth about relationships. And then I wondered, well, what is the truth exactly? Do I really believe they're not supposed to make you happy? And when we long for a lasting relationship, as most people I know do, what happens to the second noble truth? Why do we forget that craving creates suffering? So, so much of what we'll learn in the next few days is just that, like, just with the continuity of mindful awareness we bring into our worlds, we'll learn all the places where we naturally, because of the force of habit, justify 
attachment, right? As opposed to playing with renunciation. Like noticing the relationship, what we're coming into relationship with. Again, it could be food, could be a person. And playing with this interaction, this experience, isn't here to make anybody happy. It's just something being known. And it may be quite pleasant, or maybe neutral, or maybe unpleasant, but it's not here to make anybody happy. I don't need to be afraid of the pleasure as long as I don't expect the pleasure to make me happy. And I don't need to be afraid of the pain as long as I don't think the pain is here to make me unhappy. Sometimes it's painful, sometimes moments are pleasurable, and a lot of time it's somewhat neutral, not clearly pleasant or unpleasant. And this is just what the mind, you know, this is in a way how the past informs the present. Like the the cumulative experience from the past makes it seem like this moment, you know, I, in a way, the mind tells itself this is pleasant or unpleasant because it's not universal. You know, somebody might find this pleasant and find something else unpleasant. So we can't stop that ongoing pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, neutral feeling from happening. But it's really about how we relate to it. That's sort of the, you know, as we get interested in sensuality and this question I'm raising about the joy of letting go, the joy of renunciation versus the sort of normal view that sense experience based on the feeling tone of sense experience is really here to make me happy or to torment me, right? To this place where, yeah, the world will sometimes have a ple- the experience will have a pleasant tone to it or an unpleasant tone or a neutral tone, but it's not really personal, the particular tone, like the tone that's here right now. However, it feels for you right now, the pleasantness of this moment, neutrality of this moment, unpleasantness of this moment. It is what it is. We're not in denial. But is it here personally to torment you if it's unpleasant? Or personally to gratify you if it's pleasant? No, it's just the way that it is right now. And this can be quite disconcerting because it sort of begs the question, well, where do I turn then for my refuge? Because we're so used to pursuing happiness by bringing our competence to this dance of pursuing sense experience, organizing our partners so that they can be more pleasant for us, right? (laughs) We see that. I mean, one of the things, one of the casualties of retreats is going home and one of the first things we do is really wanting our partner to do retreats. And if we're honest, it's because they'll be more pleasant to us if they practice, we think, or something like that. The world would be better for me if everybody practiced. So I guess I'll take it on. (laughs) 
it gets, it's good to laugh when we see that arising and even being acted out. In our tradition, you know, um, it's nice to be around monastics when we can. Even if we're not talking or they're not teaching, but being around bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, and just uh, people who have, in a very outward way, taken up the practice of renunciation, right? So it's really an inward practice. But to be honest with ourselves, to really notice what's going on internally, we have to play with external conditions. Like we may, we could easily say to ourselves, I'm totally okay skipping lunch. But it gets really interesting when lunch is there and it looks good. It's like pasta or you know whatever it is that we crave. And then we then the sort of resolve to skip lunch meets the smell and sight and thought that's there. It's provided for me. And we really see the mind's dependence. So it's not even just how we imagine it will taste, but in a more subtle way, the mind is attached to wanting. It's attached to this whole frame that what's enlivening for us is this struggle to have nice sense experience and avoid not so nice sense experience. All governed by the feeling tone of the sense experience, what it tastes like. And we're really addicted. That's what we know. That's what we trust. We really trust sensuality. So a lot of what we need to experiment with is, is there a deeper, maybe initially seems very subtle or um, not so easy to have confidence in. But the more we look, the more we listen, the more we check it out, the more real the happiness, the joy of renunciation is. It really becomes a thread. This taste of freedom becomes a thread that we follow. And it's really up to us, especially as we leave the retreat, how to keep this thread of um, the peace, joy of renunciation, how to keep this taste of letting go in mind, how not to forget it in the great mix of life, busyness of life, the intoxication of this and that, how to keep the joy of renunciation in mind. And I think it's really through this experimentation and, and really start by changing the view that renunciation is a scary thing. There's a great article that um, one of the Siladharas, the Buddhist nuns in the Thai forest tradition, Sister Siripana, this is an article she wrote uh, a long time ago on renunciation. And she talks about how just the word renunciation has a tendency to horrify us like sacrifice because we should. 
and uh, it has, can have a very heavy feeling. And this is back to that like sense experience is bad. It's bad to have nice stuff. I gave a talk to the staff at IMS in uh, the spring around uh, money, just about relating wisely to money. And I, I just joked, like, what would it have been like, like, for example, tonight as one of the teachers walked up, if a big roll of $100 bills just accidentally fell out of their pocket? <laughs> it was like a thick wad and just sort of sitting. And everybody saw that, you know, and then Ruth scrambles or Joseph scrambles to pick it up and, and just... Like, what's he doing? What's, what are they doing with that amount of money? <laughs> Back in the 80s, I practiced with uh, Swami Satchidananda. I was part of his community for a while. And uh, I, once I was organizing this silent retreat that he would lead over around New Year's in Santa Barbara. And every year we'd invite up Prabhasa Dharma Roshi, one of the early... Um, Western respected uh, Zen teachers. She was originally from Germany, but uh, taught in Southern California for a long time before she died. Wonderful, powerful teacher. And because I was managing the retreat, we were sort of chatting, standing there. And then Swami Satchidananda drove up. And I forget what kind of car it was, but it was a really nice car. Not like a normal nice car, but a really nice car. But I can't remember what it was. And I remember the look on her face. She sort of turned to me and she said, is that his? <laughs> it was a student of his. But, but just that feeling we have like spiritual practice is this grim duty. And we have that. It's interesting when we see monastics, we can have that sort of, uh, I've had that feeling like it's almost like a primal fear no hair, you know, and in and, and, and our tradition, you know, the robes have this really kind of dull, especially the Thai forest robes, because they often will use the traditional, I think it's jackfruit um, root or something to make the dye. So they're, it's not like uh, refined material, you know, and, and it's, there's something really scary because it challenges this allegiance that the world is here to indulge in. And here's somebody in a very outward form because they kind of all look alike, right, on purpose. And here we have this sort of like standing out, being somebody, being interesting. And they all have the same kind of equipment, a bowl, a few, you know, this and that, but not much. And even the way they move, the etiquette, And it can kind of sort of do two things. One is this sort of primal fear of letting go. And another is something, some intuitive sense. Is this the way? You know, is this a symbol of the way? This path of letting go, of being in the world I mean, monks and nuns, they're in the world. They're running organizations. They're, they've got a mind and a body. They have relationships. If you've ever spent time at a monastery, you know it's not like 
out of this world. It's the world, <laughs> right? It's just people in brown robes and shaved heads who don't eat after midday, but it's still the world. And instead of you know being concerned about their car, they're concerned about their eating bowl or their cabin or their you know whatever allowables they're allowed to have. But there's something like for us lay people really useful. Same thing with coming on retreat and just submitting to the schedule, submitting to the instructions of this bare attention, this is being known. And really looking for that intuitive sense, is this the way? Because we're, remember, we're trying to reconnect over and over again and sustain this interest and the joy of simplicity. Not so much feeding on experience, but in a way, tasting the joy of non-dependence. So whatever any experience will do, could be a relatively nice moment in a sit or walking, or relatively difficult moment in a walking practice or a sit. But the happiness is the mind not being dependent on whatever the particular feeling tone is of that experience. You might have a pleasant feeling tone or an unpleasant feeling tone, but the non-attachment is always available. Can we imagine a moment in our life where if there were enough wisdom, enough momentum in our practice where we couldn't taste the happiness of non-attachment, right? It's always available. It's in that sense, it's not dependent on particular conditions. Now, it's easier when we're being reminded by a wise teacher or by our own wise guidance from our own practice, having suitable conditions that aren't so seductive. You know, you can imagine probably even with very wise, well-practiced people, if we could pick them up and put them in a very seductive situation, they might all of a sudden, you know, act out greed, anger, and delusion. We should be very humble about who we would be if we had to live in a war zone or if we had to live with a lot of oppression where we were marginalized in some way, as some of you, I'm sure, are experiencing and have experienced. So part of what... uh, we want to take advantage of is when there's enough safety to really explore this happiness of non-attachment. And really, in a very pragmatic way, not idealistic, is this the way? Is this a trustworthy way forward in my life? And it's not, as lay people, it's not about rejecting the sense pleasures that come our way that aren't causing others to suffer. And that's an interesting reflection. You know, what affluence, what comforts can we allow in where we practice receiving the pleasantness, just like we practice receiving the unpleasantness that comes our way and really willing to be intimate 
but not expecting it to make me happy or unhappy because it's just this experience being known. And the happiness the heart is pursuing is this path of awakening, awakening to the happiness of non-clinging. Following that thread, where is the happiness of non-clinging in this moment? What would that look like? This is again, uh, Sister Siripana. Rather, it's a moving toward a non-contention, a sense of rest and relaxation, not having constantly to try and manipulate and control and evade and maneuver anymore. And when I was reading that today, I remembered the story that Kamala often tells. I won't tell the story, but the, the punchline is her teacher telling her, it's the law, right? So when we have pain arise, have joy arise, it's the law that sometimes it's like this. It's really beautiful. You might go home in the reunion with your loved one. It might be really beautiful. It's the law that sometimes something very rich and pleasant arises for us. Just like it's the law, it's the way it is, that sometimes it's really, really difficult. Seems like it's unbearable sometimes, right? And sometimes it just feels neutral. I'm not even clear if it's pleasant or unpleasant. It's just life. Sometimes, and it's the law that it's gonna be all over the place, these eight worldly winds as the Buddha talks about. There's a beautiful discourse where Ananda having been talking to some lay people, they go to check in with the Buddha. So the lay people are there, but the Ananda, the Buddha's attendant is uh, speaking for them and basically repeating what the householders had told him. We are householders who indulge in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. For us, indulging in sensuality, delighting in sensuality, enjoying it, rejoicing in it, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, right, the, the Buddha's monastic Sangha, the hearts of very young people leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this doctrine and discipline, this path is contrary to the great mass of people. It's like the lay people are saying, we don't get it. Why do you <clears throat> seem so happy, you know, living out in the forest, eating your one meal a day, wearing these robes, some made out of rags, with no real possessions, dependent on people every day to feed you. If there are no people around to feed you, you, don't, you can't really eat without the food being offered. So in this dependent relationship, why do your minds, your hearts, seems so light and free. We don't get it, <laughs> right? And so here's the Buddha's response. 
So it is, so it is, even I myself before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, someone on the way to awakening, I thought renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart didn't leap up at renunciation, didn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. The thought occurred to me, what is the cause, what is the reason why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. Then the thought occurred to me. It's kind of interesting how the Buddha just drops in the question because it makes sense, right? We, all of us, we know from our experience and from just our understanding, attachment hurts, right? Craving hurts, we know that. And yet, we keep doing it. We know it, but it, we don't know what else to do. Even craving, like I think Joseph mentioned, you know, there's the craving for sense experience, the craving to become, and there's even the craving to be done, done with it all. That's sort of the uh, ascetic approach. Like just, I'm ready to check out. I've, I've had it. But that's still more craving. There's somebody who thinks, when I'm just gone, then I'll be happy. I just need to be gone, done with this existence. It's not so much different than wanting to live in Hawaii. It's just a different version of Hawaii, like not being here. That's, that's the ticket. So the thought occurred to the Buddha, I haven't seen the drawback of sensual pleasures I haven't pursued that theme. I haven't understood the reward, the joy of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with it. That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. So that he did that, right? He contemplated just living his life, continuity of mindful awareness. There were moments right, of, you know, having sense experience, sense pleasure, and he noticed the pleasure, right? Noticed the gratification of that. Noticed the drawback of that. And noticed, as he says, the escape, right? The joy of renunciation, the heart, the mind, not being dependent on whatever the sense experience is, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So it's sort of, it's kind of our own early Buddhist koan, like how to be who you are with your responsibilities, your relationships, your personality, your likes and dislikes, because none of that can change. That's already in motion, your life as it is, right? You'll be re-entering how to be who you are, but the only thing that's missing, right? So renunciation it's really the renunciation of attachment or the dependence, the mind's dependence on sense experience. It's not getting rid of sense experience. Although you might want to play, experiment with not eating lunch. I'm just kind of using that as an example, right? Because that's when you'll see whether there's dependence or not. Otherwise we can fool ourselves. I love you, I'm happy to be home, but I'm not dependent on you, honey. I've renounced any dependence 
on the joy of my relationship with you. <laughs> they probably won't like it <laughs> when you say that. And it, it's not real. But there's ways to kind of experiment with it, like going on a silent residential retreat and handing your phone in where you don't know what's happening to your honey for those days. And just notice, like, oh, I can't be dependent on that relationship because I don't really know it. I'm independent for a while. Or remembering that at some point one of us will die or the relationship will end. Things come into being and then they fall away. That's really the very nature. And as these stories go, you know, from the Buddha, this example that he gave, as he cultivated these themes, looking at the drawbacks, the limitations, the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of sense experience, and really keeping the theme of the joy of renunciation in mind, right? Well, his practice shifted and deepened and the mind got very free. Samadhi came easily because the mind wasn't entangled in the if only, if only I adjust my spine, if only the sit were to end, you know, if only there was more walking practice, if only the temperature were cooler or warmer, if only that person next to me didn't move so much, if only I had a shawl like the person in front of me, if only I started yoga when I was 20, <laughs> I'd be so limber now. And there's, there's no ending, as I've been saying. So just end the reflection, the talk tonight with this passage. It's really the Buddha's path. He's, it's a sutta. Buddha's in a very simple way talking about the path as a kind of letting go. We're letting go of our dependence on being busy, on being aversive and causing harm, our renouncing distractedness and renouncing this dependence on a sense of self, on the idea of a fixed self. So the passage is this. Seclusion is happiness for one content who knows the Dhamma who has seen. Friendship with the world is happiness for those restrained toward all beings. Dispassion admits the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. So we'll just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Thank you.
Thanks for listening, everyone. So we have about 30 minutes for walking practice and really appreciating the beautiful container, the silence for the hours that we have left. And then we'll come back at nine to chant and sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.